so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 97 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where, I know, 97 episodes, that's so much talking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this is the podcast where a couple of awesome ladies get together and talk about all the stuff about film and things we love, things we hate. This week, you know what? We're just going to talk about things we love because we can. Uh, I am Karen Peterson and joined, as always, by Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. I'm slightly less smoky this week than I was last week. Oh, man, but you're supposed to be all smoky for the noir episode, right? I know, I know. <laughs> we should have recorded when I was really at the height of my cold. Then that would have been hot. Been... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, this this week's episode, we are going to talk about November. We're going to do all sorts of film noir stuff. But before we get to that, Lauren, how are you? Besides less smoky. <laughs> Getting over a cold. That's how I am. Uh, that is the level that I am operating on right now. Uh, I'm good. Otherwise, have a nice time. Went to see Dr. Sleep yesterday. It was fun. Good. They, tr- they tried to show us Charlie's Angels. That was exciting. <laughs> Would the lady say next to you? Uh, we were about, I we got like three, four minutes into the first scene before anyone figured out that it was not Dr. Sleep. <laughs> uh, and but the woman next to me was like, look, just looking at the screen. She's like, "That's not Rebecca Ferguson." <laughs> and I was just like, "No, it is." And people began giggling because we obviously <laughs> we realized that we were watching Charlie's Angels. We were like, "All right, uh, want to see this movie? <laughs> not what I paid for." So let's fix this. They did get it fixed. So, you know, props to AMC. They got it fixed really, really quickly. It was not a big deal, but it it was pretty funny. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. What was the mix-up that they had a few years ago? It was like a kid's movie, but they showed whatever horror movie was out right then. They started this oh, horror God. movie, and it opened yeah. with, like, some scary, scary scene. <laughs> it was, it was supposed to be Peter Rabbit, but I can't remember what... Right. Was it like what the horror film was? Yeah, it wasn't Annabelle. I don't remember, but yeah, <laughs> it was like a really violent one. It was, yeah. it was just completely traumatizing. <laughs> no, I've been like one of my one of the weirdest experiences I had was I went to a uh, a film when I lived in Edinburgh, and my friends and I would often go. We were really really hungover, <laughs> so we went to we went to see. Season of the Witch, starring Nicolas Cage, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which is just a great film, everybody. I mean, it's just amazing. But it is a, actually a perfect hangover film. But they started showing, um, I think it's it's called like London Road, which is this random movie with like Kieran Knightley and Colin Farrell. And of course, us being hungover, we again got through the first scene before we figured out that this was definitely not. Nicolas Cage in Season of the Witch. <laughs> and, but they, when we told them, they actually had to, 
because of the way things were set up, they actually had to reshow all of the trailers. Oh, man. So we were sitting there watching, like, in the movie theater, watching something for about three and a half hours. That was how long it just took to get. So we had to see all of the trailers a second time. We were like, oh, my God, we're dying here, please. They did give us a refund, though. So Well, that's good. I can't yeah. remember what movie it was that came out over the summer where they made a big deal about how, like, it was the only way to see the trailer for, like, that teaser trailer for the new uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, yeah. And so I go to the theater to watch, maybe it was, like, I don't remember, something Warner Brothers, but, uh, so I go to the theater to watch it, and they had started showing the wrong movie, and... um or something happened with... No, they just didn't start the movie. Like, the showtime was, say, 7 o'clock, and 7 o'clock came and went, and nothing happened. <laughs> and so finally, like, a couple people went out to tell them, and then finally they came back in, they saw, oh, yeah, it didn't start. So then they started it, but by this point, it was late. So they just didn't show the trailers. They just went right into the movie. And I was like, son of a bitch! <laughs> so I didn't get to see that trailer for Tenet, and I've still never seen that trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, that's They didn't the release ones. it online or anything, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like doing this thing where they're not actually releasing it online. As a result, I have completely forgotten that that movie existed. I forgot until, until just now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See? You should release your trailers online, guys, because exactly. we're just going to forget about them. Well, they just figure, it's Christopher Nolan, everyone's going to go see it. Yeah, I, just, I don't care. <laughs> so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that movie still doesn't exist either, so... Whatever. Anyway, uh, send us your funny theater experiences to our Twitter account. We'd love to hear about them. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so, yeah, this is November, and we have decided this week we are doing Noir-vember. We're focusing on film noir. And um, before we even get into some of our favorite noir films, let's talk a little bit about what even is noir Lauren, I think you probably have a really good way of describing it. I don't, actually. Uh, (laughs) What? But you know all the things. I know all of the things. I know I do. But I remember talking about this initially. This was actually a topic of conversation in film school when I I went, that what is noir and how do you define it? And noir is one of those things that was sort of defined after, after it, it even happened because it was if I remember correctly, and someone can correct me if I'm getting the history wrong here, uh, if I remember correctly, noir wasn't really defined until, like, the 1950s and 60s when um, uh, the Carrier de Cinema critics got a hold of it and began talking about this particular style that developed in Hollywood post-war. And so a lot of the films that we refer to as film noir are these, you know, the gangster films, the femme fatales, all of that, they're, they've been defined kind of after the fact. And, but, you know, noir isn't really a genre. It's not like a heart. It's not like horror. It isn't like comedy, you know, or drama or anything else. It's, or even like a subgenre, like a gangster film, because not all gangster films are necessarily faux noir. It's like a look. It's the use of, of chiaroscuro and the canted angles and, you know, you get the, the kind of tropey things like um, the, the femme fatale and the put-upon detective. And so it's it seems to be one of those things. We, we said a couple of weeks ago, like, it's one of those, it's like pornography. I know it when I see it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and noir seems to have that. But as a result, there's weird definitions. Like you, you can get into like, is this a noir or, you know, is it not? Is it, does it fulfill all of those things? And I guess the, the most narrow definition of film noir would be films that are, po- that are, you know, post 1945, so post war America that are usually dealing with, uh, gangsters or people existing on the edges of society. Um, and pretty much always end badly. Like everybody dies or everybody is in, you know, everyone is worse off at the end of the film than they were at the beginning. And they're not terribly well off at the beginning either. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. What are your thoughts about, on that? Like I just gave a bunch of random tropes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's kind of the problem. I think that part of the reason it's so hard to define is because we can look at a bunch of tropes and go, oh, yeah, that fits into noir, but um, a noir film doesn't necessarily have all of those things. Yeah. And to me, it's it's like the mood of the film. Um, I, I think that that lends into it a lot. And also, yeah, the style, the way that it's shot, the way that it's, um, the way that the story unfolds. I, yeah, it is hard to, de- it's kind of like trying to just describe the difference between horror and thriller. It's like, yeah, I don't really know how to explain it. <laughs> so, if any of you have a better definition or an actual definition, let us know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that leads us into our, you know, some of our topics of discussion today. First of all, what are some of your favorite films noir? Uh, there are many of them. The Big Sleep is a big one for me. I oh think yeah. That's- that's one of the first ones that I ever saw. And, uh, and I mean, I love, I love the book. I love Raymond Chandler's books generally, but the big sleep actually, I think is a better film than the book is a book because it gives the, the Lauren Bacall character. It actually gives her more of a part. Uh, if you read the book, uh, Miss Sternwood is not, it's, she's, she's an important character, but she's not a major figure in the, in the film version of the big sleep they are co-stars, uh, and it isn't just about Philip Marlowe. It's about Philip Marlowe and his relationship with Sternwood, and I really like that about the film. And it's just also a very clever, intricate mystery that doesn't actually give a total solution. You, it's it's not clear. Like some of the things that actually happen in the story, like there there there's a murder that is that goes unsolved, uh, and that there's an assumption that uh, one character is the killer, but you don't actually know it because we don't see it. And there's no explanation for it. And in fact, I think that um, Howard Hawks actually called up Raymond Chandler when he when they were working on the script and was like, who kills this guy? And Chandler's like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of characteristic of a lot of Chandler's work where you get these, these things that happen for no apparent reason and you, there isn't always this clean and tidy solution. I love the big sleep. Oh yeah. Uh, I think that's like the quintessential film noir. That's the one that is the easiest one. Like that just pops into your mind when you think of this, this, uh, not genre, but yeah. Style, I guess. Yeah. And I also like, uh, I love the asphalt jungle. Uh, that is a great film. And, uh, and you know, if, if you, if people don't know the asphalt jungle, it's 
it's a gangster film, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a mystery. Marilyn Monroe is in it as a very, very young actress. Uh, it's, again, that sort of seedy, underbelly kind of story, but it's incredibly taut. It's one of those films that is just really well constructed. And you sit there, you watch it, and you're like plunged into their into these people's mindsets, basically. It feels like it's very psychological. And I think that that's one of the things I like about film noirs, that there's a lot of psychology to it. And some of that is a result of its affinities with um, German expressionism and stuff like that, that it's actually using the, la- the urban landscape usually to um, kind of develop the character's psychology. Mm-hmm. So those are two that I like. Yeah. Um, uh, this is hard for me. I'm a fan of Fritz Lang. And, uh-huh. um, I mean, oh, shoot, I just lost the name of it. Um, the woman in the window is a, yeah. is one that I love. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm like so out of it right now. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm like holding my breath underwater. Uh, anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Anyway, I'm okay. I'm, it's very noir, by the way. It is, isn't it? It's like, I'm just, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, the woman in the window is one that, uh, I don't know. That's always just, I've seen it a few times and I think kind of like the big sleep. It's one that just feels like that quintessential noir film to me. Uh-huh. The, the, the mood of it and the way that I really like the way that he directs. I like his style of directing and so many of his films, I think fall into this, uh, this category of description that we're talking about, but yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. It's that relationship with German expressionism. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it trans and that's kind of those directors influence the development of noir. That's so Lang comes, comes to America and suddenly begins to get these influences of uh, expressionism, but within an American setting. And so that noir kind of develops out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is funny because noir is a French term, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think there's a lot of of Fritz Lang movies I would put into this category as as movies that I just love. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of some other ones. And have you seen House by the River? No, that's one on my list that I haven't seen. Oh, that like. That I mean, I I almost hesitate to call it noir because it seems like it it just exceeds noir in some ways. But that is a fantastic film. I re, I saw that last year for the first time. It's really a fascinating work because it's the villain is the main character. I mean, and you know that he's the villain pretty much from the first scene. Right. It's it's a it is a movie. <laughs> yeah, I I've been wanting to see it and I just haven't. So I think what I need to do is just like. When I have, like, maybe over Christmas or something, just upgrade my Netflix account so that I get the DVDs for just a month uh-huh. and just get a whole bunch of these that I can't get anywhere else and um, just watch some stuff like that. So Yeah. If you have access to Canopy, House by the River was on there for a don't. while. I don't. I don't. My library doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So uh, what about neo-noirs? Let's talk about that. Well, now I, I love talking about these things because it's like so this genre that isn't really a genre that we can't really define then develops into another genre that isn't really a genre <laughs> that we can't define 
and that becomes different because it's like later. <laughs> right. Uh, which is true. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, Chinatown, I think is kind of yeah. the big one. And yes, I know, I know all the problems, whatever. It's a great film. It is a great film. You cannot argue with that. Exactly. Uh, that was one I was very reluctant or not reluctant, hesitant to watch for a long time because of, you know, issues. But I finally sat down to watch it last year for the first time. And I was just like, what have I been thinking? Why did I wait? <laughs> this movie is amazing. It's so good. It, it is actually a really good film. You know, mm-hmm. we can, we can argue about all of the other issues that are present in it, but it, it's just as a film film. It's good. Yeah. Well, another one on those lines, LA Confidential. Yeah. <laughs> a great film. And it's like, now I feel like I can't watch it anymore, but yeah. <laughs> I'll get to a point where I can watch it again, I think. Well, but that one, you can sort of, sort of ignore Kevin Spacey a little bit. I mean, he's yeah. an important character, but you can, there are other good things that are going on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what about some other ones? Uh, I was just thinking about Brick. Yes. Ryan Johnson. Yeah, which is a and, and is a um, an update of the Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. uh, which I in high school, which I love. I, I just I like that kind of relationship. Um, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers, uh, very early Coen Brothers film with Francis McDermott. That's like the only Coen Brothers film I have not seen. It is so different. Yeah, uh, from so much of their other stuff, it's got that humor, but. It it's it's quite obviously an update of film noir, but you have that kind of film noir element of the really stupid man committing mm-hmm. a really stupid crime, and then all of the things that spiral outward from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Fargo could be considered a neo noir, also. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also I loved. I don't. The problem is I haven't seen this in a long time, so I don't remember a lot of the details about it. But I, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily remember the specifics of a film, but you remember how it made you feel. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of those is Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington. Which I have not seen. Oh, man. I think it's on Prime, actually. But I remember seeing it when it first came out. I was with my friend. We went and saw it in the theater because we just loved Denzel Washington and we were excited. And anytime he had a new movie out, we had to go see it. That's how we ended up seeing that weird computer movie. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think Russell Crowe was in that. Um, but anyway, devil in a blue dress was exactly this neo noir style film that it was just so good. And Denzel Washington was so perfect for a film like that. He's such a great actor. I really love him. So yeah, that's another one. I I need to revisit that because it's yeah, that's, yeah, that one's good. Um, I'm gonna have to watch that. Mm-hmm. I'm just scrolling through a couple of lists here and like, oh yeah, that one. Um, another one, Gone Baby Gone, which I also have not seen. <gasps> it's like the best movie that um, um, Ben Affleck has directed, I think. Wait, did he direct that one? I, I think, think he did. I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's when I was watching it I was like, man, this has elements it feels like Mystic River a lot. And then I realized they were both based on the book by the same author, so that made sense. But yeah, that one's really good and it's like 
again, problematic people because <laughs> Casey Affleck's in it and he's uh-huh. so damn good in it. And it's like, Ugh, why do these people have to be so good at what they do? <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, one, one that I thought of um, just now is The Long Goodbye. Uh, you know, talk about Raymond Chandler, the 1973 Robert Altman film. Mm-hmm. with Elliot Gould, which is, again, you know, it's it's like Chinatown. It's one of those that kind of comes up pretty much every time you begin talking about neo-noir. But it is, for, if if you haven't seen it, if anyone hasn't seen it, just go go get it, because it really is, it's, it's Philip Marlowe updated to the 1970s, and as a result, it's just got a completely different construction. Um, and it's really interesting to watch, especially if you've seen other films about Marlowe with, like, Murder My Sweet or The Big Sleep, which are very, you know, which kind of undercut some of the things that, that Chandler did because you, you sort of, the bad guys have to be punished and the good guys have to win kind of thing. Uh, and Chandler's books don't always come out like that. So uh, The Long Goodbye changes some things about the original novel, but it actually does kind of delve into some of Chandler's thematics a lot more and is just... It's a fascinating film. That's one that I don't know if I've ever actually seen the whole thing. I know I've seen parts of it, mm-hmm. but I, I need to go back and actually watch the whole movie. Um, yeah. I have so many that are just on my list, you know? Well, there are a lot. Yeah. there. Are. Well, I mean, just in general, I have so many movies. So it's like, I need to see that someday. Like, people have told me sometimes that they're embarrassed to admit to me some of the blind spots they have. I'm like, Oh honey, I've got them too. Don't worry. <laughs> I've got well, movies that like people would be shocked that I haven't seen. <laughs> I mean, we all do, you know, I, I went through a Robert Altman phase, so I just watched pretty much all of his films, but it's, yeah. Uh, I also had a thing for Elliot Gould. I will admit that young Elliot Gould, man. No, I'm with you on that one. Um, <laughs> By the way, just looking down the list, I just realized that um, you had put favorite neo-noirs, but then also that question came from at Nanina Gilder, too. Yes. So just wanted to give you credit for that as well, Nanina. Thank you. Um, what about feminism in films noir? Can you think of any feminist films? I was trying to rack my brain. I can't. I can't think of any that I would consider overtly feminist. I mean, yeah, I was trying to think about this, and also just in terms of, and I think we have another question about this, just in terms of the issues with how women are represented in film noir. Oh, yeah, this is from at uh, Lala39202. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts of depictions of women in noir. So, yeah, yeah that's a good time to talk about all of that. Um, in terms of explicitly feminist film noir, I... It's. I mean, first of all, you're talking about a pure. If we're actually talking about noir, noir, so from the 1940s and 50s, it's really hard to find. Uh, you know, things that are explicitly feminist. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit sometimes, and you get films that can, certainly can be interpreted that way. But you know, just in terms of the time period, it's doesn't happen as much. Uh, but I think some noir. I think you can interpret. In, in a feminist way, and not just like this is the male gaze and this is patriarchal, but that you know, in in film noir, one of the things that it does, one of the the elements of the femme fatale is that she's usually a lot smarter than all of the men surrounding her, mm-hmm. and you see that in in movies like Double Indemnity, uh, yeah. with Barbara. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck is 
she just she controls all of the men everywhere. Right. Uh, you know, Fred McMurray basically made a career in phonoir out of playing middle class idiots. And <laughs> and that and that's what he that's what he does in that film. Uh uh uh, uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, Lana Turner and the Postman Always Rings Twice. Same kind of thing, where the woman manipulates the man, and on the one hand, you can look at it as being this very anti-woman, that she's like controlling him via um, sex and her attractiveness and using all of these elements of herself in order to basically destroy his life. On the other hand, you've got a society in which women don't have much beyond that, and are and these these incredibly beautiful women are using the things that they do have in order to get what they want, and ultimately it results in their destruction and it results in the destruction of the men that come into contact with them. But there's something almost there's something liberating in that kind of thing. It's like the the use of the female villain, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, my my favorite example is Pushover with also with Fred McMurray. And Kim, like a 21-year-old Kim Novak, and you're sitting there watching this movie, you're like, dude, dude, you're like 45, she's she's 21, uh, she does not want to fuck you. Like, she wants to murder you. And she's going to destroy your life, and she does. <laughs> yeah, I think that one of the things that, uh, I think this is a perfect example, something that we talk about a lot, too. I think this is a perfect example of where you have a lot of films with a lot of strong female characters that doesn't necessarily make them feminist. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think we see this not just in this genre, or not just in this style, but um, just in general with film and, like, people now, you know, oh, Red Sparrow, you know, strong female yeah. character. That doesn't make it a feminist movie. So, and it goes back to the beginning with noir, too, so. But I think that there are a lot of really great depictions of women, or a lot of great female characters. Well, one of the the problems that you always have in films like this, and it's been pointed out about noir, is that women only get to be interesting if they're bad. Right. And so you get, so one of the, the great things about noir is that there are these great characters, and they're complicated characters, you know, like Lana Turner in Postman Always Rings Twice is a complicated character. Um, they done away in Chinatown. Yeah, complicated characters. And so the they're interesting and they're interesting to watch and they're and they're important to watch. But on the other hand, they have to be bad because in order to you know, in order to in order to be interesting, in order to be sexual, in order to like kind of have some degree of power and some degree of control, they also have to be punished for it in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always the problem, which is why it's interesting when you get to movies like one of my favorite, uh, neo-noirs is Body Heat, mm-hmm. which is basically an update of Double Indemnity, but with some changes. And I'm not going to spoil it for everybody, but it, it definitely, Kathleen Turner is the the lead, and she definitely gets to do things that a lot of women in, in your regular film noirs do not get to do. And it's cool to see that, to actually um, kind of see those those bad women, as it were, celebrated at some level, like getting to see them succeed in some measure. Uh, but yeah, it's not, you know, they they are all punished for their sexuality. They're all punished for being bad. And 
it's pretty indicative then that all that in the good women in film noir are always really, really boring and they're never the stars. Right. Yeah. Which is true. And it's funny because as you're talking about this, I know this isn't necessarily a noir film or really a noir film at all, but um, I just keep thinking about psycho Yeah, <laughs> and the, the sisters, the way that they're portrayed. And it's like, you've got, Janet Lee, who is supposed, you know, you go into it thinking she's the star of the movie and she's going to kind of be like a final girl and she's bad. And yeah. she, the whole reason she's in her situation in the first place is because she's having an affair with a married man and she steals a bunch of money. And then her sister ends up actually being the one that is kind of the hero of the story. And she is the good girl. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I was just was thinking about that. It's kind of funny. I love I love when Hitchcock likes to turn things around, but yeah. But it's it's interesting with uh, with that film that she is still a sympathetic character. Yeah, Marion mm-hmm. is is very sympathetic, and she she struggles with the choice that she makes, and also what she's doing. You know, you can read it as the film punishing her for for committing this crime, and in a certain sense, it is. If like you say if she hadn't committed this crime, she would never be at the hotel. And then, you know, no, she, she wouldn't die, basically. <laughs> but but the, the punishment, as it were, is represented as being way more than, you know, any, it's not, it doesn't feel like she deserves it. It doesn't feel like that this is like the moral universe writing itself or anything. It's, she's a likable figure. She's someone who has made, who's made an error, who's made a stupid mistake, and you understand why she does it. Mm-hmm. And actually by the time you get to the murder, she's decided that she's going to go put the money back. Right. Uh, yeah. And that she's going to like kind of take the consequences for that. And so you get someone who's done something wrong, who decides that she wants to, that she wants to make it right and does never gets the chance to. Yeah. It's interesting the way that, cause I, I didn't say that as like, well, she had it coming to her, but it's interesting how many people think that way. <laughs> And it's like, no, for me, it's like, yeah, that sucks because she made this decision and she made these mistakes, like put her in a bad situation, which happens in life, too. But it's it's interesting how many people think like, oh, she had it coming or she was like, I heard someone say that she was the real villain of the movie. I'm like, I think you need to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, she steals some money from an asshole. Like, that's what right. happened. Right. Yeah. Like, the guy's not even nice. Come yeah, on. It's, it's not like she, you know, knocked over a children's charity or something like that. And, like, <laughs> or even a convenience a... store. Like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, no, she. But I do think that Vera Miles is actually, in that film, is actually very underrated because she is. She's basically the hero. She. She's really the only one who spends the time to figure out what happened right. to her sister. Yeah. And, you know, even way more so than the men yeah. do. Uh, and and that she ultimately is the one who figures everything out and figures out what's actually going on at that right, house. Right, yeah. I mean, Arbogast is trying until he's not able to complete the job. But, yeah, Sam is kind of just like, well, it sucks. She ran away and left me. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting when I saw when I saw this film with, with the group of people that had never seen it before. There were a number of people that were like, "Sam is being so mean to Norman. Like, that's so nasty. He's such a bully." And, I, and I'm sitting there going, "Like, you have no idea what's coming." Uh, 
And it's like, oh, Sam's being so mean. But it's actually true. Like, he mm-hmm. is being mean. He is being a bully. And in watching the film, you're like, actually, Sam's a total yeah. dick. Like, Norman fe- feels like the nice guy in exactly. this scenario. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But that is not noir. No, so. it's not. It's just as you're describing the characters, I was thinking about those two those two in particular, and it just popped yeah. into my head. But yeah, definitely not noir. Um, yeah, I, I just... It's it's fun to talk about this, but I also feel like when it comes to noir, I don't know as much about it as I know about other things. And I feel it's this is what I was talking about before we started recording. Like, it's one of those things where I feel like I don't know a lot and I feel like I haven't seen anything. And then I start looking at lists and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Wait, that's noir? Okay. You know, so then I start realizing like, oh, I, I guess I know more about it than I thought I did, but I still feel like I'm woefully under underviewed when it comes to noir films. You're, you're woefully interesting. No, but you obviously have seen some, yeah. some things. I think, I think that's it. We, a lot of people think that they've seen less than they have because noir is such a nebulous True. True. term. And so what, what we try to define it as is very different. It's so like, um, one film that I was just thinking about in terms of this issue of feminism, it's interesting that Ida Lupino directed uh, kind of one of the quintessential film noirs, The Hitchhiker, yes. which has almost no female characters mm-hmm. uh, and is t- entirely focused on on masculinity and representations of masculinity. Uh, but it's interesting to see kind of, I, it would have been interesting to see if, what Lupino could have done with, because uh, she played femme fatales, mm-hmm. and she played noir characters, uh, it would have been interesting to see what she what she might have done with a noir as a director, um, with a noir that was more focused on women. But it's it's interesting that one kind of one of the only uh, female directors of that period made her sole noir as something that was just focused on literally three guys in a car. Yeah, but it's at the same time it's interesting for what it says about um, about masculinity and uh, what noir says about masculinity because so much of it is about these kind of we're talking about these guys that are sort of unmoored mm-hmm. um, this post-war sense of like you know people have come back from the war there's uh, you know there's a lot of prosperity but there's a, also a lot of poverty and you've got this kind of expression of all of these men who don't quite know what their places are yet. A lot of the original noir figures are ex-soldiers, ex-military, um, who have sort of returned and don't quite know how to navigate the world that they've come back to because they, and, and you know, and what we would now call PTSD, that's what they're, oh, that's what a lot of them are suffering from. Right. They didn't really have that term then, and yeah, it's yeah. it's funny just talking about Ida Lupino for a second as a director. It's it's interesting because we see this with a lot of directors. Um, Catherine Bigelow is another big one that comes to mind, not in terms of noir, just in terms of storytellers. And mm-hmm. it's it's funny because I think it's clearly a lot easier for women to tell stories about men than it is for men to tell stories about women. And I think that a lot of that is just because we're so used to having to navigate, uh, you know, male storytelling. And, and we, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast too, where 
marginalized groups of people because they have to find ways to see themselves in other people's experiences that are not their own. Uh, it's easier for them to tell those stories. And so I think Ida Lupino is a great example of that. And I think the reason she's able to tell such a good story in The Hitchhiker with these three men is because of the fact that, you know, we had to, that that's the type of stories that we're used to experiencing. And for a male director to tell a story about three women would be a lot trickier. And there are not as many that are capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she, and she doesn't reduce any of her three main characters to caricatures. Right. Um, you've got, which I, th- I think that um, a lot of the time, and, and there are some films directed by men that actually focus on women that, that work a bit better, but a lot of the time, particularly again in that... Yeah, I'm not saying that men aren't capable, so... No, I just mean in that period. Um, yeah. Like, it's telling a story about three women in a car... Well, wow, that would be fascinating to just redo The Hitchhiker as three women instead of three men. I think that that could be very exciting. Uh, but to tell a story about, like, three women in a car, yeah, a male director, I think, would would stereotype them fairly quickly. And that would be yeah. expected. And The Hitchhiker is interesting. What, what make, One of the things that makes it so good is the fact that they're not stereotypes. Even the villain is an interesting figure and you know I was mentioning this issue of post-war the there's this whole thing where he didn't you know he has this this fetishization of the gun and the power that the gun confers on him etc and there's a heavy implication that he never went to war he doesn't he's killed people but he's never actually had to be on the other side of a weapon um whereas the two men that are that he hijacks have they're soldiers. They knew each other when they mm-hmm. were soldiers. And now they've kind of come out of that. But yeah, it's interesting to see this this female director taking on, as you're saying, men male characters tend to be the default. Uh, and male perspective tends yeah. to be the default. But it's, it's an interesting film for seeing these men at kind of a different angle. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bottom line, women just are better storytellers than men are, and they yes. should get to direct all the movies. <laughs> yes. Except for you, Paul Feig, you're allowed to keep directing movies. Yes, we, we'll, we will permit Paul Feig, maybe Alma Devar, because I think he does a lot of interesting shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that. The rest of you are on probation, you need to reapply. Men just aren't that good at directing That's films, true. obviously. There's a few outliers, but generally... <laughs> Some of you do uh, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Is there anything else about noir that you'd like to talk about? I think we've kind of covered a lot of ground. I was trying to think about like other other noirs and what noir says. Well, uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, just because I was I've been watching a lot of um, films outside of uh, outside of America. And it's interesting to see how noir sensibilities get translated into other cultures. So we talked about the French basically defined film noir as film noir. Um, And then, of course, you get films like Breathless and Band of Outsiders and Shoot the Piano Player and um, the films. I don't know if you've seen any of the films by uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, but he's kind of one of the major French directors of noir. 
And, uh, but again, it's interesting to see these like American mindsets, stuff that, that is very quintessentially American, then sort of moved over, defined by the French, moved over to France and interpreted through post-war French, the post-war French world and kind of the next generation of filmmakers. And so like in Breathless, you know, famously, um, Jean-Paul Belmondo's character is constantly comparing himself to Humphrey Bogart. Like he wants to be this, this noir hero basically. Uh, and he sort of waxes philosophic about that, but it's interesting the way that these, these, um, concerns and images and, you know, lighting schemes, everything kind of get translated over to that. And then they also moved to Japan. I've seen a number of Japanese noirs, which are very different. But again, mm-hmm. it's taking the same kind of concepts and putting them into a new culture and kind of interpreting them through that culture. Uh, all of which argues that we should all really know film history because these things do affect our culture. <laughs> they do. And I love it how people are just like, oh, no, this this is brand new. No one's ever done anything like this before. And like, well, if you watch you know, films from the 1950s, you'll see this has been done a lot. And this influences that. I mean, there's, everything is influenced by something. And I mean, I was watching Queen and Slim the other night and I was picking out like, oh yeah, this is, this reminds me of, of this movie or that movie. And, and that's great. And I think it's it's awesome because that continues the history of film if things are... I mean, we don't want things to be... Everything to be derivative. And we don't want to keep remaking the same stuff over and over again. But, well, some corporations do. But but storytellers should be influenced by the things that have come before them. And then they use that to tell the stories of the world they currently live in. And then that becomes what influences the next generation. Yeah, exactly. And and all of these things relate to one another. So, uh, you know, I, was, I mentioned earlier German Expressionism, which is a style, which was primarily a style during um, pre-war Germany. And then you get these filmmakers, like Fritz Lang, uh, who move from Germany, and also people like Alfred Hitchcock, who actually worked in Germany, and worked under people like Murnau, who was a major, major uh, he directed Nosferatu, he was major in um, German Expressionism. So you get that, and then these guys sort of jump over to America, and they bring all the sensibilities, and they bring kind of the use of lighting, the use of angles, etc. And it turns into this quintessentially American genre. So the film's by Fritz Lang that he made in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then they continue to move throughout Europe, uh, pre-war, post-war, um, and then into the 1960s and 1970s and the development of neo-noir. So there's this really fascinating continuum that gets going and all of them are in reference to each other. And it's this cultural exchange that then that each culture turns into something new. And then you get to the current period that John Wick would not exist without any of this development. And, and so you can't look at John Wick. It's like, Oh, this is something completely new. It's like, no, this is something that has developed out of, you know, you could trace John Wick all the way back to Weimar, Germany, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like that uh, there's like a Twitter 
poll thing that was going around a few weeks ago. I remember uh, you commented on it. Actually, that was actually I think that was how I even noticed this thing was going around. And it was like you have to remove one of these directors, yeah. and it was like Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese. I can't remember who the other two were. They're like and Quentin, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, and yeah. Maybe Paul Thomas Anderson. That could be. And you were the one who was like, uh, three of these guys wouldn't exist without the other ones. So, <laughs> yeah. At least not the same way. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you can't you can't look at the work of those three directors and say that and and be like, oh, if we got rid of Scorsese. No, if we got rid of Scorsese, their work would look different. Exactly. Because they so, would be influenced by other things, other people. Yeah. And that's what gets lost so much by these fanboys that are now getting to call themselves critics and, and write about films because they don't understand that one thing influences another. That's just that's just reality. That's how it is. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I saw the other day, and I will not mention the person's name because I don't like him, uh, <laughs> was a, an article that was arguing that The Shallows, starring the movie with yeah. Blake Lively, right, mm-hmm. was a better film than The Birds. And first of all, it's such an odd, to me that's such an odd comparison to begin with, because I'm like, those are two very different films, just in mm-hmm. terms of, like, it's, they're not obvious, like, it's not like The Shallows is a remake of The Birds, but with sharks. Right. Or something. It's a very odd kind of comparison, just in my mind. But the other thing was that there's there's this tendency to just set up this binary, like, it's either the birds or the shallows. It's like, well, no, there are two films that are doing two different things. But if you really want to talk about it, again, the shallows cannot really exist without the influence of the birds. Mm-hmm. It it would be a different film, and because you know, the shallows is also influenced by Jaws. Jaws right. is also influenced by uh, by Hitchcock and by the whole concept of this of nature rebelling against humanity. Um, and The Birds was one of the, not the first film, but one of the major kind of touchstones for this whole idea of of nature attacking people with no apparent reason, right? That, that's the terror of The Birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was this very odd comparison. It's just like, wait a minute, why are you setting these two up in a binary? Why do, you know, why does it have to be either The Birds or The Shallows when they're doing completely different things. And actually the shallows is using techniques that the birds pioneered. So shallows wouldn't exist. Exactly. And I don't understand why people don't get that. Yeah. You know, um, the, in a couple weeks we've got knives out coming out from Ryan Johnson and that is heavily influenced by the works of Agatha Christie, by, uh, old films from, you know, some of them from the, from the noir that we're talking about too. And Ryan Johnson's great. I really like him as a filmmaker for a lot of reasons. Hang on one second. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a great filmmaker. And part of the reason that he's so great at storytelling is because he understands these stories that came before and he's influenced by them. Not just because he thinks they look cool, but because he actually understands them yeah. and has studied them on an actual intellectual level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, 
you know, you're talking about Psycho a few minutes ago. I recently watched a, an interview with Martin Scorsese. We were just talking about the influence of the shower scene in Psycho on a fight scene in Raging Bull. And that he actually used the same rhythm that the shower scene uses in this fight scene. And there, and there have been videos that compare the two side by side. And it's fascinating. But it's like, you've got these two films that really don't have much relationship to one another. You've got a, a, you know, a slasher film from 1960 and a boxing movie from like 1981. But he actually studied that and was like, we can use that. We can influ- We can use this influence to make to create the impact and basically turn this fight scene into almost a murder scene. Mm-hmm. And it and that's fascinating. But all of these guys, like all of the best directors, beyond like Quentin Tarantino, who just takes stuff from other people, all right. of the best directors use these things as an influence because they understand the importance of film history and the importance of the development of that. And those are all very important things to know as critics and uh, important to know as people that study film and how important these, these issues are. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to get crap for saying this on this podcast, but Tarantino is basically the kid who aced all the multiple choice history tests, but then, you know, did terrible on the essay portion (laughs) (laughs) because he knows all the facts and he knows all the names and the dates but he doesn't understand the whys and the hows and the real meaning behind any of that. That is a fantastic analogy. <laughs> that is, I love that analogy. That is perfect. But yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I think that that's, that is, you've hit the difference between someone like Tarantino and someone like Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So watch Scorsese movies. They're great. Yes. Many, many of them are great. Some suck. There's one or yeah, there's one or two I don't love, but for the most part, I mean, he's had this long career for a reason, and I'm really excited about The Irishman, and I can't, I'm not going to go see it in the theater again, because I've already seen it twice, but I'm actually really excited for when it's on Netflix, because I do want to watch it again, it's really good. Um, anyway, not a noir either. <laughs> uh, definitely gangster film, though. Um, anyway, alright, so... Let's talk a little bit. We've got some time. Lauren, you got to see Dr. Sleep, and you told us a little bit about your experience trying to watch the movie, but when you actually got to see it, what did you think? Uh, Okay, so I liked it. I will say that right off the bat. Um, I enjoyed it. I think that Ewan McGregor was great. I absolutely agree with all of the praise that Rebecca Ferguson has been receiving. She is one of the best horror movie villains in a long time. Partially because she is actually, again, an interesting character. Like, Mm -hmm. you get this, we don't get tons of her backstory, but you get enough, I think, that you, there's this sense that she isn't just bad. There is, like, a moral universe that she operates in, and she does have this deep affection for the people that she she lives with. And she's just a fascinating figure, and I think that, that, that was really important in this film because otherwise it would have been not great. Um, I loved, uh, and I can't remember her name right now, but the, the girl, um, uh, who plays sort of Ewan McGregor's or Danny's friend, neat, like surrogate niece. Uh, I like the fact Kylie something. I'm, I'm looking it up. I, I like the fact that she was 
um, that she was given so much power, that she has so much power in the film, that they never really take that away from her. Um, and that there is a little, you know, at one point, I think Rose says to her that you, you've got darkness in you and that there is that darkness. And that, but there's also that shaping of the darkness, that she makes choices about what she wants to be and who she wants to be. Um, even at the age of, you know, whatever, 14. Mm-hmm. Kylie Curran is her name. She was great. Like, I, I will be interested to see what she does uh, in the future because she was a really just interesting character and very good actress. I do have some issues with particular... Well, I have two issues. One, despite the fact that we've got these great female characters, the snake bite subplot, I had many problems with. Among them being, first of all, this was obviously written by men. No woman in the history of women wants to be 15 forever. No one. No. (laughs) Like... It does, even if you really were hot at 15, you still don't want to be 15. It is a fucking minefield. So no. 15-year-olds don't want to be 15. Exactly. Like, you might look back on it and be like, oh, actually, that wasn't so bad. But at the time, no. So no girl wants to be 15 forever. That whole subplot to me had a lot of a not-all-men vibe that I really didn't appreciate. And I've had issues with the way that Mike Flanagan in particular represents certain elements, of female characters. Uh, and this filtered through King who also has issues just really kind of brought home to me the fact that this, this was, it was a misstep. I, th- I don't think that it was, uh, it's not necessarily misogynist, but it definitely is sexist. And I don't think that it worked the way that they needed it to, uh, she was a character who I think could have been very, very sympathetic and initially is sympathetic, but they never really did much with her character. And so you, you come down with this feel, I, I came down with this feeling of that she had just been, she was sort of a one note character that was kind of like, Oh, this 15 year old girl preying on these older men, I guess, because, because that was sort of how it came off. It was sort of a to catch a predator thing. Like, she was preying on these older men who were predisposed to doing things to young girls. Yeah, exactly. And it, it mm-hmm. was, and to me, it was very odd. It, it had this very odd vibe because, and again, I think that if they had developed her character a little bit more and made her, she was an opportunity to make particularly all of these other, this, this group, very sympathetic. Because you're like, okay, you understand, like, she's kind of being abused and she's using her abilities to sort of get something that she wants. But they didn't really do much beyond that. And then the whole thing, just a spoiler alert, the whole thing when she's pointing the gun at Danny and says, you know, fucking men. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this isn't necessary. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And I don't remember any of that going down that way in the book. It's been a while since I've read it, but I was trying to think, like, is this how this happened in the book? I don't think it is. I think that's a Mike Flanagan thing. And I I think that that was a misstep. The the other misstep that I, the third act, I don't think worked the way that it needed it, the way that it needed to. Um, so pretty much so. Again, I'm going to spoil some things. So just people who have not seen Dr. Sleep jump over the next few minutes. Um 
returning to the Overlook was a good idea and I think worked initially, but it kind of, it wound up actually reducing Rose, I think, to an afterthought. Because you've built up this fantastic, terrifying villain, right? And we kind of got the final showdown, and the final showdown is going to take place in the Overlook Hotel. I'm fine with all of that. The amount of time that they spent with Danny just walking through the Overlook and sort of reliving his childhood, initially I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then I was like, okay, now I'm getting bored. When are we actually going to get to the fun part, which is Rose entering this space and, and like actually having that altercation. And it felt like Flanagan was so excited to be in the overlook and to be like playing in the same sort of sandbox that Kubrick was that he completely forgot that there's, that he had a film to make uh, and that there was actually an arc that needed to be completed. Um, I also, I, you know, I've got it trying, trying to uh, mimic Kubrick and trying to repeat some of the things that made that particular film iconic is a big swing. And I admire that. I also think that he completely missed because unfortunately Flanagan has his own style and that's cool. He is not Stanley Kubrick. Uh, he can't construct those images in the same way that Kubrick did. And it just felt like, it felt like someone just mimicking, trying to mimic what Kubrick did and sort of missing the boat on it or something. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that the ending worked in the way that it needed to. And I think that it kind of gave short shrift to this villain at, who, had been such a fascinating figure up until that point. So that was my reaction. I liked a lot of it. Not a big fan of the ending and some of the sexual politics are a little bit iffy. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's funny because the, and I keep comparing the book and the movie, but um, it's funny because in Stephen King's version of the shining, the overlook hotel burned down. Yeah. And in his, in his book, Dr. Sleep, he kept that true. He didn't He didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to go with Stanley Kubrick's ending, which, I mean, famously Stephen King didn't like Kubrick's movie anyway. Um, so in Dr. Sleep, the Overlook Hotel had burned down, too. That, that stayed true. And um, the showdown still happens on the grounds, but because there's not a hotel, the way that it plays out is very different. Mm-hmm. And... It was one of those things where it was like, I actually really liked the way that Flanagan played with it, and I really liked the the t- throwbacks that tie into the movie as well, and I feel like it's cool that he was able to somehow make a sequel that fit the movie and the book. But I also found myself wishing that they had been able to, and I guess they could have just said, like, oh, off camera, the hotel burned down. But, yeah. um, but... Yeah, I liked the way that the showdown happens on those grounds and it kind of shows that it's the land that's bad and not necessarily this building. Mm-hmm. But but I liked the tie-in and and seeing some of those memories too, so. But I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, how did you feel that so how in that context, how did you feel that they dealt with Rose in all of that because there's a lot of time is spent on him you know, reliving basically 
you know, he has the conversation with his father's ghost. Right. And all of that. It's funny because until you were talking about it, I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it because uh, for me, what I was caught up in with that, especially the scene in, inside the ballroom yeah. when they're at the bar talking, uh, I was just thinking about how this is uh, Dan's way of, of processing some really terrible things that happened in his childhood mm-hmm. that he'd never really had had the opportunity to deal with because of what happened afterwards. And so I liked getting to see that for him. But after listening to your take on things, it's like, oh, huh, yeah, they should have done more with, with Rose in that as well. So it's I wish that they had found a way to still do the stuff with Dan, but then also give more to Rose in those final scenes as yeah. well. I really wanted to see her relating to the hotel more because you've got the, she's yeah. a, at that point, she's incredibly powerful and very angry. Uh, and she's in this space where she's essentially coming face to face with ghosts or whatever, however you want to define it, that are very similar to her. Right. And I would have been interested to see her actually interact with that more and process that more. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and one of the problems I think is, uh, now that the ho- like so now the movie ends with the hotel burning down and so there's this sense of that's all it took and yeah. that land is still bad and so it's like but i mean rose was this like not really immortal but very long living character and what happens after she dies does her spirit stay with theirs well now i guess it doesn't matter because the hotel's going to burn down and our idea our understanding of that is now everything is like that spell or whatever is broken those spirits are gone they're not going to still be there whereas in if the hotel had been burned already and they go and they have this confrontation on this land that's not free that is still very much inhabited mm-hmm. by these beings then what happens? Does she stick around in some sort of afterlife? Yeah, and, and I think that that could have been. There, there's a, I, I, yeah, I just feel like it could have been dealt with differently. And I, again, I admire the fact that he really did try, like you're saying, he really did try to bring these two things together: the book, mm-hmm. the ending of the the original Shining, the film, and the book of Doctor Sleep, and the film of Dr. Sleep and he was trying to sort of unite all of these things and he, and he took a lot of risks of doing that. And I, I think that that's really admirable. Um, I just don't think that it worked for me in the way that it needed to. Uh, I also, that's fair. I also do think that if you're going to hire an actor to replay a part that Jack Nicholson originated, you've got to get someone incredibly like painfully charismatic because Nicholson, again, say what we want to about him, particularly in The Shining, he is fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. And when you're replaying a, basically a scene that he has already done, and you're hiring another actor to sort of substitute in for him, you've got to have someone that has at least a, a fraction of that power. And I have no idea who the guy is that they got to play him, but he had. It's Henry Thomas. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. Elliot from E.T. He's been in several Mike Flanagan things. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah. Uh, he's not that interesting on screen. <laughs> in my view. I, 
No, I agree with you, at, at least in this, uh, especially in this particular role. But for me, the reason I was okay with it was because I feel like the point of that scene wasn't about Jack. It was about Dan. And I think that if you had someone that was more like Jack Nicholson, or if they had done something really terrible, like uh, used old fitted footage and yeah. repurposed it or whatever, I think then the focus would have been on Jack it would have really drawn the eye to him, to what he was doing, to whatever technology they were using to make that happen. And I do agree that Henry Thomas is a little weak and could have been stronger, or they could have had someone else that could have been a little stronger. But it, for me, it didn't bother me because I think that it keeps the focus on Dan and what he's going through. But I think that there needed to be that conflict. That was the problem that that you've got because his, his father has has, as the film develops, has loomed large over him for his entire life and has been kind of a ghost that he has had to deal with. And so he's coming face to face with that. And in relation, particularly in relationship to his alcoholism. So I felt like there, there needed to be a stronger conflict as a result. I didn't feel like that film or that scene paid off emotionally, uh, Mm -hmm. that you finally bring the, the grown up Danny and, his, you know, whatever the shade of his father together, and he's finally facing that right in a really terrifying way, and it didn't feel emotion like it didn't feel emotionally impactful. It didn't feel like the 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 kind of closing off of that story that it sort of needed to have. At the same time, I'm glad they didn't redeem him. I'm glad that it wasn't like, oh yeah, I was a bad father. Right. <laughs> or like, oh, it's all good. You just were misunderstood, yeah. Dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, that's it. I think it's worth seeing. It is definitely worth seeing. Like I, mm-hmm. for all of my reservations, and Rebecca Ferguson is great. Oh my gosh, I definitely i I want a hat just because of her. I want that. Yes. Hat. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Her entire wardrobe was just. Oh my gosh, it's perfect. <laughs> And I was so fast. I found myself so fascinated looking at her hair and the way that it's braided. And I was just like, man, I could never pull that off. Yeah. It just looks so cool. She's just cool. Yeah. I love her. Um, all right. So what are you doing this week? I'm going to go see Charlie's Angels. Since I saw the first scene, anyways, <laughs> might as well. Thanks. What about you? Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Well, we're in the middle of AFI Fest, which started on Thursday. So I'm going to, I'm in years past, I've spent most of my time there and I've had like the whole week off. It's just here in LA. It's nice that it's a local festival. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to catch a few things. So I'm going to head up there uh, a couple days this week. This afternoon, I'm seeing Bombshell. Ooh. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just catching up on, well, not catching up on, but catching a few things uh, that are coming out. I'm going to the premiere of The Two Popes, um, which I've already seen, and I really like it. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing it again because it's really well done. I'm excited about it. So, yeah, that's about it. Um, I can't believe we're already in the middle of award season and... Uh, it's just crazy. My my calendar is ridiculous. I've got so many interviews. I did a press day last week for Rocket Man, which was really fun. And I've got another one coming up for the Aeronauts, and just 
all kinds of stuff. It's great. And then, like, my my group, LA OFCS, is going to start its nominations, I think, this week. And so it's just we're right in the middle of it. Uh, and I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Well, that's going to wrap things up for this week. And um, thanks, as always, for listening to our ramblings. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you want to continue the conversation, let us know some of your favorite noirs and neo-noirs and um, things that maybe you feel like we forgot to talk about or things that we might not know about. Just let us know. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We're also on Facebook Sometimes facebook.com slash citizen dame, or you can send us an email citizen dame pod at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to check out our official website, which is citizen dame pod.com. And we have links or well, we have, um, reviews. We have all kinds of fun stuff over there. Uh, and then if you would like to support us in a financial way, we love money. So that helps us keep things going. We're not making any money off of this, uh, endeavor, but, uh, it is nice that we have some great support from some awesome people that help us keep things running. And you can do that in a couple of ways. We've got our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash citizen dame. If you do that, you can get episodes early. We're trying to work on a couple of bonus episodes that'll be coming up. So some fun stuff there. We also have some merch uh, at our Zazzle store. Lauren just put up some great new buttons and things. We've got t-shirts, all kinds of fun stuff. And that's Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. Or if you just want to kick in a couple of dollars and you don't want a commitment and you don't want more stuff in your house, <laughs> there's our Ko-Fi too, which is ko-fi.com slash Citizen Dame. You can also reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am at LH Business on Twitter and Instagram, I think. And I am at Karen M. Peterson on Twitter and Instagram. So we'd love to hear from you, and um, we hope you all have a great week. Thanks. Bye. Do you remember the last time you saw Mulray? Uh, my age, you uh, tend to forget. It was five days ago outside the Pig and Whistle, and you had one hell of an argument. <clears throat> I got the pictures in my office, if that'll help you remember. What was the argument about? My daughter. What about her? Just find the girl, Mr. Kitts. I happen to know Hollis was fond of her. I'd like to help her if I can. I had no idea you and Hollis were that fond of one another. Hollis Mulray made this city. And he made me a fortune. We were a lot closer than Evelyn realized. If you want to hire me, I still have to know what the argument was about. My daughter's a very jealous woman. I didn't want her to find out about the girl. <laughs> <laughs>